Chapter Thirty Two, Part Two of the Betrothed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lonnie Small. The Betrothed by Alessandra Manzoni. Chapter Thirty Two, Part Two. The most general and most willing fidelity to the trying duties of the times was conspicuously evinced by the clergy in the lazarettos and throughout the city their assistance never failed where suffering was there were they they were always to be seen mingled with and interspersed among the faint and dying faint and dying sometimes themselves together with spiritual succors they were lavish, as far as they could be, of temporal ones, and freely rendered whatever services happened to be required. More than sixty parish priests, in the city alone, died of the contagion, about eight out of every nine. Federigo, as was to be expected of him, gave to all encouragement and example. Having seen almost the whole of his archiepiscopal household perish around him, solicited by relatives, by the first magistrates, and by the neighboring princes to withdraw from danger to some solitary country seat, he rejected this counsel and entreaties in the spirit with which he wrote to his clergy, be ready to abandon this mortal life, rather than the family, the children, committed to us. Go forward into the plague as to life, as to a reward, when there is one soul to be won to Christ." He neglected no precautions which did not impede him in his duty, on which point he also gave instructions and regulations to his clergy, and at the same time he minded not, nor appeared to observe, danger where it was necessary to encounter it, in order to do good. Without speaking of the ecclesiastics whom he was constantly with, to commend and regulate their zeal, to arouse such as were lukewarm in the work, and to send them to the posts where others had perished. It was his wish that there should always be free access for any one who had need of him. He visited the lazarettos to administer consolation to the sick and encouragement to the attendants. He traversed the city, carrying relief to the poor creatures sequestrated in their houses, stopping at the doors and under the windows to listen to their lamentations, and to offer in exchange words of comfort and encouragement. In short, he threw himself into and lived in the midst of the pestilence, and was himself astonished at the end that he had come out uninjured. Thus, in public calamities and in long-continued disturbances of settled habits, of whatever kind, there may always be beheld an augmentation, a sublimation of virtue. But alas, there is never wanting at the same time an augmentation, far more general in most cases, of crime. This occasion was remarkable for it. The villains, whom the pestilence spared and did not terrify, found in the common confusion, and in the relaxation of all public authority, a new opportunity of activity, together with new assurances of impunity, nay, the administration of public authority itself came, in a great measure, to be lodged in the hands of the worst among them. Generally speaking, None devoted themselves to the offices of monati and apparatori, but men over whom the attractions of rapine and license had more influence, 
than the terror of contagion, or any natural object of horror. The strictest orders were laid upon these people, the severest penalties threatened to them. Stations were assigned them, and commissaries, as we have already said, placed over them. Over both, again, magistrates and nobles were appointed in every district, with authority to enforce good government summarily on every opportunity. Such a state of things went on and took effect up to a certain period. But with the increase of deaths and desolation, and the terror of the survivors, these officers came to be exempted from all supervision. They constituted themselves, the Monati especially, arbiters of everything. They entered the houses like masters, like enemies, and not to mention their plunder, and how they treated the unhappy creatures reduced by the plague to pass through such hands. They laid them, these infected and guilty hands, on the healthy, children, parents, husbands, wives, threatening to drag them to the lazaretto, unless they redeemed themselves, or were redeemed with money. At other times they set a price upon their service, refusing to carry away bodies already corrupted for less than so many scudi. It was believed, and between the credulity of one party and the wickedness of the other, belief and disbelief are equally uncertain. It was believed, and Tadino asserts it, that both Monati and Apparatori purposely let fall from their carts infected clothes, in order to propagate and keep up the pestilence, which had become to them a means of living, a kingdom, a festival. Other wretches, feigning to be Monati, and carrying little bells tied to their feet, as these officers were required to do, to distinguish themselves and to give warning of their approach, introduced themselves into houses, and there exercised all kinds of tyranny. Some of these, open and void of inhabitants, or inhabited only by a feeble or dying creature, were entered by thieves in search of booty, with impunity. Others were surprised and invaded by bailiffs, who there committed robberies and excesses of every description. Together with the wickedness, the folly of the people increased. Every prevailing error received more or less additional force from the stupefaction and agitation of their minds, and was more widely and more precipitately applied, while every one served to strengthen and aggravate that special mania about poisonings, which, in its effects and ebullitions, was often, as we have seen, itself another crime. The image of this supposed danger beset and tortured the minds of the people far more than the real and existing danger. And while, says Ripamonti, corpses scattered here and there, or lying in heaps ever before the eyes and surrounding the steps of the living, made the whole city like one immense sepulchre. A still more appalling symptom, a more intense deformity, was their mutual animosity, their licentiousness, and their extravagant suspicions. Not only did they mistrust a friend, a guest, but those names which are the bonds of human affection, husband and wife, father and son, brother and brother, were words of terror and dreadful and infamous to tell. The domestic board, the nuptial bed, were dreaded as lurking places, as receptacles of poison. The imaginary vastness and strangeness of the plot distracted people's understandings, 
and subverted every reason for reciprocal confidence. Besides ambition and cupidity, which were at first supposed to be the motives of the poisoners they fancied, they even believed at length that there was something of diabolical, voluptuous delight in this anointing, an attraction predominating over the will. The ravings of the sick, who accused themselves of what they apprehended from others, were considered as revelations, and rendered anything, so to say, credible of any one, and it would have far greater weight even than words, if it happened that delirious patients kept practicing those maneuvers which it was imagined must be employed by the poisoners, a thing at once very probable, and tending to give better grounds for the popular persuasion and the assertions of numerous writers. In the same way, during the long and mournful period of judicial investigation on the subject of witchcraft, the confessions, and those not always exhorted of the accused, serve not a little to promote and uphold the prevailing opinion on this matter. For when an opinion obtains a prolonged and extensive sway, it is expressed in every manner, tries every outlet, and runs through every degree of persuasion, and it is difficult for all, or very many, to believe for a length of time that something extraordinary is being done without someone coming forward who believes that he has done it. Among the stories which this mania about poisoning gave rise to, one deserves to be mentioned for the credit it acquired, and the extended dissemination it met with. It was related not, however, by everybody in the same way, for that would be too remarkable a privilege for stories, but nearly so, that such a person, on such a day, had seen a carriage and six standing in the square of the cathedral, containing some great personage with a large suite of lordly aspect, but dark and sunburnt, with fiery eyes, hair standing on end, and a threatening expression about the mouth. The spectator, invited to enter the equipage, complied, and after taking a turn or two, stopped and dismounted at the gate of a palace, where, entering with the rest, he beheld horrors and delights, deserts and gardens, caverns and halls, and in these were phantoms seated in council. Lastly, huge chests of money were shown to him, and he was told that he might take as much as he liked, if, at the same time, he would accept a little vessel of unctuous matter, and go about anointing with it through the city. Having refused to agree to the terms, he instantly found himself in the place whence he had been taken. This story, generally believed there by the people, and according to Ripamonti, not sufficiently ridiculed by many learned men, traveled through the whole of Italy, and even further. An engraving of it was made in Germany, and the electoral archbishop of Mainz wrote to Cardinal Federigo, to ask what he must believe of the wonderful prodigies related at Milan, and received for answer that they were mere dreams. Of equal value, if not exactly of the same nature, were the dreams of the learned, and equally disastrous were they in their effects. Most of them saw the announcement at once and cause of their troubles, in a comet which appeared in the year 1628, and in a conjunction of Saturn with Jupiter. The aforesaid conjunction, writes Tadino, inclining so clearly over the year 1630, that every body could understand it. This prediction, fabricated I know not when, nor by whom, 
was upon the tongue, as Ripamonte informs us, of everybody who was able to utter it. Another comet, which unexpectedly appeared in the June of the very year of the pestilence, was looked upon as a fresh warning, as an evident proof indeed of the anointing. They ransacked books and found only in too great abundance examples of pestilence produced, as they said, by human efforts. They quoted Livy, Tacitus, Dionysus, Homer, and Ovid, and the numberless other ancients who have related or alluded to similar events, and of modern writers they had a still greater abundance. They cited a hundred other authors who have treated theoretically or incidentally spoken of poisons, sorceries, unctions, and powders. Cesalpino was quoted, Cardano, Gravino, Salio, Pareo, Scencio, Zacchia, and finally that fatal Del Rio, who, if the renown of authors were in proportion to the good or evil produced by their works, would assuredly be one of the most eminent. That Del Rio, whose disquisitions on magic, a digest of all that men up to this time had wildly devised on the subject, received as the most authoritative and irrefragable textbook was, for more than a century, the rule and powerful impulse of legal, horrible, and uninterrupted murders. From the inventions of the illiterate vulgar, educated people borrowed what they could accommodate to their ideas. From the inventions of the educated, the vulgar borrowed what they could understand and as best they could. And of all, an undigested, barbarous jumble was formed of public irrationality. But that which still further excites our surprise is to see the physicians. Those physicians, I say, who from the beginning had believed in the plague, and especially to Dino, who had predicted it, beheld it enter, and kept his eye on its progress, who had affirmed and published that it was the plague, and was propagated by contact, and that if no opposition were made to it, it would become a general infection. To see him, I say, draw a certain argument from these very consequences, for poisonous and magical unctions, to behold him who in Carlo Colonna, the second that died in Milan, had marked delirium as an accompaniment of the malady, afterwards adduce in proof of unctions and a diabolical plot an incident such as this. Two witnesses deposed to having heard one of their friends under the influence of the contagion relate how some persons came one night into his room to proffer him health and riches, if he would anoint the houses in the vicinity, and how, on his repeated refusal, they had taken their departure, and left in their stead a wolf under the bed, and three great cats upon it, which remained there till break of day. Had such a method of drawing conclusions been confined to one individual, it might have been attributed to his own extreme simplicity, and want of common sense, and it would not have been worth our while to mention it. But as it was received by many, it is a specimen of the human mind, and may serve to show how a well-regulated and reasonable train of ideas may be disordered by another train of ideas thrown directly across it. In other respects, this Tadino was one of the most renowned men of his time at Milan. Two illustrious and high-deserving writers have asserted that Cardinal Federigo entertained some doubt about these poisonings. We would gladly give still more complete commendation to the memory of this excellent and benevolent man and represent the good prelate in this, as in many other things, 
distinguished from the multitude of his contemporaries. But we are constrained instead to remark on him another example of the powerful influence of public opinion, even on the most exalted minds. It is evidence, from the way at least in which Ripamonti relates his thoughts on the subject, that from the beginning he had some doubts about it, and throughout he always considered that credulity, ignorance, fear, and a wish to excuse their long negligence in guarding against the contagion, had a considerable share in this opinion, that there was a good deal of exaggeration in it, but at the same time something of truth. There is a small work on this pestilence, written by his own hand, preserved in the Ambrosian Library, and the following is one among many instances where such a sentiment is expressed. On the method of compounding and spreading such poisonous ointments, many and various things are reported, some of which we consider as true, while others appear to us entirely imaginary. Some there were, who to the very last, and even afterwards, thought that it was all imagination, and we learn this not from themselves, for no one had ever sufficient hardihood to expose to the public an opinion so opposed to that of the public, but from those writers who deride it, or rebuke it, or confute it, as the prejudice of a few, an error which no one had ever dared to make the subject of open dispute, but which nevertheless existed, and we learnt it, too, from one who had derived it from tradition. I have met with sensible and well-informed people in Milan, says the good Moratori, in the above-quoted passage, who had received trustworthy accounts from their ancestors, and who were by no means persuaded of the truth of the facts concerning these poisonous ointments. It seems there was a secret outlet for truth. Some remaining domestic confidence, good sense still existed, but it was kept concealed for fear of the popular sense. The magistrates, reduced in number daily, and disheartened and perplexed in everything, turned all their little vigilance, all the little resolution of which they were any longer capable, in search of these poisoners, and too easily did they think they had found them. The judicial sentences which followed in consequence were not certainly the first of such nature, nor indeed can they be considered as uncommon in the history of jurisprudence, for, to say nothing of antiquity, and to mention only some instances and times, more nearly approaching those of which we are treating. In Palermo, in 1526, in Geneva, in 1530, afterwards in 1545, and again in 1574, in Casale Monferrato, in 1536, in Padua, in 1555, in Turin, in 1599, and again in Turin, this same year, 1630. Here, many unhappy creatures were tried, and condemned to punishments the most atrocious, as guilty of having propagated the plague by means of powders, ointments, witchcraft, or all these together. But the affair of the so-called anointings at Milan, as it was, perhaps, the longest remembered and the most widely talked of, so perhaps it is most worthy of observation, or, to speak more exactly, there is further room to make observations upon it, from the remaining existence of more circumstantial and more extensive documents. And although a writer we have, not long ago commended, has employed himself on them, yet his object having been not so much to give the history, properly speaking, as to exact thence political suggestions, for a still more worthy and important purpose, it seemed to us that the history of the plague might form the subject of a new work. 
but it is not a matter to be passed over in a few words, and to treat it with the copiousness it deserves would carry us too far beyond our limits. Besides, after we should have paused upon all these incidents, the reader would certainly no longer care to know those that remain in our narrative, reserving therefore for another publication the account of the former, we will at length return to our characters, not to leave them again, till we reach the end. End of chapter 32, part 2